Well, good morning to everyone. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors of our church here in the Atlanta area. And as Jamie said earlier, we're just delighted that all of you can join us this morning uh, to assemble together, even virtually, and to, uh, to hear what the Lord is saying, because that's what's of most importance to us. Uh, when I hear the phrase, gateway to the West, I think of St. Louis, and you may too, that big 630-foot monument, man-made monument, the Gateway Arch, right? Supposedly the gateway to the West of the United States. But it surprised me a little bit when I learned in studying the gateway to the West that there are many so-called gateways to the West. Canada has several towns that claim that title, including Winnipeg, which is near the longitudinal center of North America and is the largest city and capital of the province of Manitoba. So I'm looking at you, Greens, Gordon, Selena, and Harrison, and Alex, and all you guys. Uh, you've got a gateway to the West. But Australia also has a gateway to the West. It's called Fremantle, a port city in Western Australia, and it's located in the mouth of the Swan River. And I even learned that China has a gateway to the West. It's a city called Chongqing in Southwest China. It seems that Western migration has always been a part of our history. It's always been a thing. But when the letters to the seven churches in Revelation were written, it wasn't the Wild West that needed a gateway. It was the East. And the city of Philadelphia in Asia Minor served as a type of frontier outpost that opened travel to the wild east of their time. Philadelphia was known as the city of the door. That was a, a nickname that it had. And it was deliberately founded to Hellenize eastward, to spread Greek culture and language in a peaceful, formative way into places like Lydia, which it worked so well in Lydia that by AD 19, they had forgotten their own language and were all speaking and living as Greeks. So when we read the letter to the church in Philadelphia, which we're just about to, I want you to keep all of those things in mind because they'll have pertinence to what we see. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7, and we'll read this letter that Jesus spoke to the church in Philadelphia. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those in the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. 
Now, did you notice what's not in this letter? There's no rebuke in this letter to the church in Philadelphia. There's no correction or reprimand. There's no calling them out for something that they're lacking. While most of the seven churches receive correction and admonishment with a little commendation sprinkled on top or sandwiched in between, Jesus has only good things to say about this church in Philadelphia. Even though he said they had little power, which probably meant that they saw themselves as small, insignificant, lacking influence politically or socially or financially, still Jesus praises them for keeping his word and not denying his name. What we read in this letter, it really highlights again for me the common disparity between our definition and God's definition for a faithful, thriving, successful church. I think a lot of well-meaning church people have been evaluating church life on the wrong deliverables. They've looked at things that are externally motivated and externally measured. Things like size, how many people are a part of it, the budget, how much money they bring in, facilities, campuses, multiple campuses, programs, program, more programs. Why, they even look at parking spaces to make sure that it's adequate for those that might show up. They consider political influence and charismatic leadership and entertaining instruction that delights the, the listener. They want to make sure that they have an appeal to young people and musical relevance. They want to have some mood lighting, maybe a little ambiance, a sleek vision, a dazzling online presence. I mean, your church needs to sizzle. It needs to sparkle. It needs to shine. I'm not opposed to living an attractive gospel. It's just that those surface things are not what make us attractive. The externals are never good enough if what's inside doesn't have integrity to it. They're, they're sugar-coated candy in a world that needs real-life substance. Jesus looks for the more subtle measurements. He, he looks at things that are rooted in our hearts and things that are carried out in our actions, like faithfulness to his word and not forsaking his name. Now, I'm not saying that all big churches with lots of money and charismatic leaders and dazzling programs are bad. I'm just saying those things don't make them good. They, they might be an indication of true spiritual life. In some cases, I certainly believe they are. But they can't replace real spiritual life. But I'm also not saying that small churches with little money and boring leaders and dull programs are good either. God knows that we have way too many of those that are just as dead as some of the big flashy ones. What I'm saying is what Jesus says, that the true marks of a faithful church, according to his word that we've just read, are faithfulness to his word and not denying his name. Now, I ask you as a believer, as a follower of Christ, if you are indeed one and claim to follow Jesus, 
Ask yourself if those things are operating in your life. Are you faithful to his word? Do you hear what he says? Do you care? Do you read his written word? And are you listening to the word of the spirit that speaks to you and gives you direction day in and day out? Are you listening and keeping his word? That's what makes you a good believer, a faithful believer, one that is worthy of commendation. That's what makes us a good, faithful, commendable church is that we would be faithful to his word and that we would not deny his name, that we would maintain loyalty, strong allegiance, that his name, the name that is above every name, would be preeminent in our life. It would be the thing that dictates how we live our lives. Nothing else would sit on the throne of our lives except Jesus. So faithfulness to his word and not denying his name, that's what made this church so incredible. Jesus, um, in this letter, promised several things to this church in Philadelphia, including that those who opposed them from the synagogue of Satan, that's a group that we've heard about before, would come and bow at their feet. That's a fascinating piece. But Jesus says the reason that would happen was to prove God's love for this group of people in Philadelphia. And he said that this church would be spared from a worldwide hour of testing. Many see that as the great tribulation. But beyond even those promises, I want us to look at the promise that's declared starting in verse 12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All of this promise to those who conquer, he said, they were so relatable to the people of Philadelphia, all that Jesus promised. Jesus was connecting with their history and with their local context. First, this city of Philadelphia was famous for honoring its illustrious citizens by inscribing their name on pillars in their temples. Archaeology shows us that that's what they did. So when Jesus said to this church, those who conquer, that he would make them a pillar in the temple of God, writing on them the name of God, there was context for that promise. They understood what he was saying. And when Jesus said that they would never go out from this place, which Jesus is promising, they understood what that meant too. You see, Philadelphia had been destroyed by an earthquake just 70 or 80 years before in AD 17, resulting in most of the people not remaining in the city, but rather fleeing from it out of fear that the earthquake would come again. And after many aftershocks, they thought there was no way they could remain in the city. So that promise meant something to these people. And when Jesus said he would name them the city of God, the new Jerusalem, 
it meant something to them. It meant something because on several occasions, rulers of the city had changed its name to get in good with that Roman emperor or with Rome itself. Jesus was giving those who had not denied his name a God-given name, the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, and this name would never be changed back. These promises were hugely significant. They, they got it when Jesus said these things. Then It was personal. It meant something. And it makes me realize how Jesus, he always says the right thing. He, he speaks a word so relevant to our situation. It's never impersonal when he's speaking. It's a word that will unlock your heart and it will, it will meet your need. It will deliver on his promise. And it's not only sent to us, given to us, his word to help us understand him, it's given to us to help us understand how much he cares. As Brother John Duke, who was the pastor of our church for 27 years, would always say, it's not just what God does. It's how he does it that matters. Jesus was doing this in style. He was speaking to them promises that were so personal for each of them. But there's one more promise woven into this message to the Philadelphia church that I want to speak about. It's the one that stands out to me the most. It comes out of this vivid description that Jesus gives of himself. He said that he was the one who holds the key of David and the door he opens, no one can shut. And the door he shuts, no one can open. And then he goes on to specifically promise to this church in verse eight, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, let me ask you, have you ever stood at a locked door with no way to get in? I, I remember a couple years ago after one of our Sunday gatherings, and it's always such a rich time. I miss those times. We're going to, by God's grace, be back soon. But after having passed out candy to all the kids and had so much fellowship and ministry time, I'd gone back into my office to gather my things and I was loading up my backpack and putting things in my pocket. And I loaded up and headed out the door, closing the locked door behind me. And just as it slammed shut, I realized I didn't have my keys. I realized that they were sitting on the desk of the locked room. And as that thought occurred to me, it also occurred to me that the master key that we hang in the men's bathroom, I just told you the secret. So if you ever, if you ever need the master key, there it is. It was missing at the time. And I thought, oh no. And I knew Jamie was out of town at that moment. And I thought, who else has got a master key? I'm in trouble. I, I scurried around the church and of course, talked to Steve Knopfsiger and Jimmy Conley. They, they helped me fix everything. And we all began to realize no one had a master key. And so as I gathered, we all gathered there in the hallway in front of my door, Jimmy, I'm sure it was Jimmy because Jimmy fixes everything, just reached down and wiggled the door handle and realized it was unlocked. It had been unlocked the whole time. 
I was going crazy trying to figure out how to get into a locked door that wasn't locked. Maybe think about this story. Jesus not only unlocks the door for us, he, he opens it and he says, no one's going to be able to shut it. Man, what a promise. That's a great promise. And it surely was a reference to this city's nickname. You remember what I told you it was? The city of the door. When I hear it, it makes me think of all the door references in Scripture, especially the open doors of ministry, like Paul and Barnabas returning to Antioch after their first missionary trip. And they said this in Acts 14, 27. It said this, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And then Paul wrote to the church in Corinth saying this, But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. That's a sermon all in and of itself. And then he said to the Colossian church another time, in Colossians 4.3, At the same time pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. I think one aspect of this open door that no one is able to shut is a door for effective ministry, a door for faith to those that are around them, a door for God's word to go forth, just as it did for Paul and Paul and Barnabas. It makes me pray for that sort of door to be opened for us. And as I listen to Joey and Molly and and Jamie and Anna and the rest of the youth team talk about how doors are being opened in these communities among our young people and how I hear our, our small group leaders talking about how even in the midst of COVID, we're seeing new people come around and start coming into small groups and wanting relationships. I realize he's answering that prayer for us. He has opened a door that no one can shut. A door to our neighbors and co-workers and classmates and community. And I sense that door may be more open than we can even imagine or think. The question is, are we walking through it? I also think that in the middle of all this fear and uncertainty surrounding a coronavirus, causing shutdowns and closings, the Jesus still opens a door that no one is able to shut. He may have closed other doors. He does that too. But I want to ask you, what door has he opened that no one can shut? Are you aware? Are you thinking you're looking at a locked door and it's been unlocked all this time? It's like God is saying what he said to his prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 43, 13. I am God and always will be. No one can escape from my power. No one can change what I do. And and where there may be doors shut to the way we used to do things, he has also opened wide doors that no one can shut. If we'll keep our eyes open for them, we'll be surprised with all that can happen when we walk through them. 
about a week and a half ago, Brother Charles Simpson was driving through town and we got to have dinner. Jamie and, and Curtis and I got to have dinner with him. And that's always such a special treat. We love Brother Charles. And he was on a on a trip to minister to several different uh, groups and about going to be on the road for about six weeks. And he was sharing with us a story that night, a story that I had heard before. It was actually a vision the Lord had given him. And I, I hope he'll forgive me if I butchered the details, but there's some truth that really stuck out to me. He said he, he saw himself in the hallway, a large, expansive hallway, like in an old English-style mansion or manor, or even certain southern homes used to have these really large, tall-ceilinged hallways where all the rooms were off of that hallway, and you could enter those rooms by these doors. And he saw himself in this hallway with others, and people were filing out, disappointed with what they had experienced. All these doors that were on that hallway, they had been closed. And he felt the Lord speak to him that he should open the door and go in and experience that which was in the room. Experience the, the place and of expansive ministry and opportunities and relationships that God would give him if he would just open the door. I was so moved with the passion that he was sharing that vision and I got in my car that night and I said to the Lord, Lord, I want that to be my story. I want that to be our story. I want us to open the door and go where you have gone before us, what, what you might lead us into, where we would have an expansive view of the kingdom. It's not narrow and myopic. It's big and expansive, wide open spaces. What doors have we kept closed that the Lord has instructed us to walk through? What things has he unlocked that we choose to remain quiet to? Even with all the door of opportunity to minister that I believe this group in Philadelphia was being given, they were the city of the door. I believe they were being given opportunity. But even with that truth, we need to remember this one fact that probably trumps them all. And that truth is that Jesus himself is the door that we must all enter. Verse 7 of John 10 says, And Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door, Jesus said. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus not only opens a door that no one can shut, he is the door that no one can shut. He is the door by which every man, woman, child, when they enter into him, will be saved into Jesus Christ, the one and only, the name that is above every name, the way, the truth, and the life to everlasting life, entering by Jesus the door. That's how you get saved. That's how you begin to walk in and out and find pasture and provision and life and peace. So 
for our church and those that are listening this morning. Listen to the words of the Holy One, the true one, the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. He says this, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door and I am the door that you must enter. I have opened for you a door of ministry and life of mission and reciprocity and love for others. But I have also become for you the door that brings you into eternal life. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and look for that open door that no one can shut. Look for his door and enter. Amen. I'm going to ask my wife to come and as we conclude our typical live stream gatherings, I've enjoyed having her be able to come and share what is on her heart and then for us to be able to pray for you. There's a verse in Colossians chapter four that says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful and pray for us that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. Pray that we proclaim it clearly as we should. Be wise in the way we act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let our conversation be full of grace seasoned with salt that we might know the answer for everyone. God does open the door for us, but it does require us to move in obedience, to recognize what he is doing, to agree with him about what he's doing, and to engage in what he is doing. And that's my prayer for us this morning, that we would be able to do those things in faith with his power. Amen. Father, thank you that you are the door and that you open doors. And even in that, you give us a responsibility so that we can, by an act of our will, engage your will and your purposes. Hmm. So, Father, enlarge our faith because that's the door to obedience. Give us courage to make the most of every opportunity, to look for doors, to to have the courage to walk through them when we sense that that's your leading. Mm -hmm. And even to be willing to make mistakes, Father. This is not the time to play it safe. Mm -hmm. The day of Jesus is approaching, as Jamie said to us at the start of today. And we should be even more active in the things of God as we see that day approaching. Mm -hmm. So spur us on, give us opportunity Test our faith that it may be found genuine and cause us to earnestly desire to see your kingdom coming. Yes, Lord. Jesus, we thank you that you are still walking and moving among your church. You're not a distant, far-off ruler. You're up close and personal. You know the intimacy of our heart, of our struggles, of what we face. Yes, And you are still speaking to your people today. You're asking us to repent, 
to turn back to you, to return to our first love, to be more faithful in our keeping of your word, and to be strongly loyal and not denying of your name. Yes. I pray, Lord, that you will help us as a church community and those that we're connected with across this nation and around the world to be light in the midst of darkness, to take the light that you've put in our lives and walk through doors where it's dark, where light can shine and life can be given. Mm -hmm. And I pray, Lord, that we will not stand on the outside of what we thought was locked, wondering what's on the other side. Rather, we will in faith walk through the door that you have opened, which no one can shut. Help our people, help us, O oh God, in this day to respond to you and be commended in the end for our faith and for our allegiance to your name. Bless, Lord, our community and all that are listening and help us to obey you in these yes. critical and uncertain days. For nothing is uncertain to you. You reign and rule over it all. We ask all of this and commit it to your to your purpose and your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We love you very much. Yes, we do.